Well, good morning, Hope. I was driving in. I'm looking at signs with arrows that say hope this way, and I thought, how appropriate is that in the world that we live in, that there's a place of hope? I'm sorry. I was just like, can you bring that out and place it for me? Thanks, Jim. So I was just thinking how incredibly appropriate that is. In a world that really struggles uh, to understand hope and to have trust and to experience peace because the world is a kind of a turbulent place, no? Amen? Is your life kind of a turbulent place? Yeah, and you're Christians, you follow Jesus, and many people would expect, well, if you follow Jesus, things should be so much better and easier for you than they are. And maybe you felt that way. Uh, I certainly have at times. So again, my name is Chuck. I'm here to tell you a story this morning Normally, I'm a Bible preacher, and I preach through a bunch of texts. I'm only going to preach through one verse of Scripture this morning. And like Jesus did, what I want to do is I want to tell you a story about somebody who's really close to me. And in fact, um, this man is my father. His name was Gene Gerwig. Uh, Gene died four years ago, and uh, after a long life, he lived 89 years and uh, that's, that's an incredibly long time. But it's even more incredibly long because of his story. And so I want to share with you a little about his story in a segue, Jesus style, to this one powerful, important idea about how, not so much about how, but why we can have hope, why we can trust God in our most difficult circumstances, and ultimately how we can thrive and live with joy in a world that is uh, uncertain, challenging. And so you've probably had experiences in your life where something happened that you were not expecting. It kind of came out of the blue. Uh, and it had such great impact on you that it changed your life. And maybe not in a pleasant way. Uh, life is really uncertain, and I think for many of us, we have a false theology or belief about God that says, if I just be good and do enough right things, God will spare me from real calamity or real suffering. Uh, but that's not the story of Christianity. It's not the story of the history of the church. There's victory and triumph in Christ in the midst of what I would call to be just, just like an avalanche on the earth. Let me pray for a minute and then tell you a story. Lord Jesus, we thank you that even though we can see all these things in our own life, in our finances, in our relationship, in our health, in the uncertainty of the world and in, the, in our concerns for our children and our parents, God, we thank you, Jesus, that you remain king. You are in charge. But I'm just telling you, Lord, I forget that. When storms and trouble and fires come into my life. So would you grow me, grow my friends to people who trust you in a greater way that we would experience the hope that it says all around this building. That we'd experience it every day, Lord. So we pray, Father, through the power of your Spirit that you'd speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, if you've been around the church for a long time, you've probably ran into this verse of Scripture. 
It's in a book that a guy named St. Paul wrote to a group of early Christians in Rome. Uh, Like most of us, they were not Jewish people. They were Gentiles, and he had never met them, but he writes a letter to them because he hears about what's going on in their church. Good thing. So Romans 8, verse 28, should be right up here on your screen. Beautiful technicolor. It says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. It seems to be a promise about good things for those who love Jesus, who have been called by him according to a purpose that he has, to his purpose. Now the problem is with that is we can begin to think that that means that if we say um, yes to Jesus or we go to church or we do good things, that God will spare us from some of the really varsity-level problems that we see in the world. Um, And it's not that God is not active in blessing us, but it doesn't... Have you ever known a Christian who's gone through something and you go, whoa, where was God in that? Or you just see something horrible in the world and you go, wow, I wonder why that happened, or where was God in that? Well, I grew up with a man named Gene. I'll tell you his story. It was 1953. Gene is 24 years old. He's a young, happy sailor. He's in the Navy, and he's going to go home on leave, which makes him even happier. Everything in his life is out in front of him. He's got no cares in the world, and he gets a ride towards home with a guy that he doesn't really know, but who has a car. It's a 41 Ford, and they're driving down the highway, and Gene is sitting in the passenger seat, And as they approach a gas station on their right, uh, the driver does not seem to recognize that the car in front of him is not driving, but has stopped. But they're on the highway, and they're flying down the road, and the car that Gene is in collides into the back of this other car, and it explodes in flames. Now, the driver is thrown out, because that's back in the day when nobody wore seatbelts, right? So he's thrown out onto the road. He breaks his wrist. But Gene is caught in the car as the car is on fire, and he can't get out, and everything just goes black. He sees nothing. He hears nothing. He knows nothing for a period of about eight or nine months. The people who came to rescue him said that the fire was so hot that when they would try to reach in and get him, that when they would lift his body, that the flames would you know, push up into the air pocket behind him and ignite other parts of him. And the flames were so intense that they couldn't get him out, and they tried and they tried, but he was in there a long, long time. In fact, he was in there so long that it burned 89% of his body, of his skin surface, of the outside of him. And as he's breathing these superheated airs, it's cooking and destroying his internal organs and he has zero chance of survival this 1950s you just didn't survive these kinds of burns in those days so he's got a zero percent chance of survival but he has an ace in the hole he has my grandma praying for him now my grandma i don't know what kind of magical prayer thing she has but she she got me saved she prayed me into the kingdom and that's another story but my grandma and her little church in west virginia were praying that somehow god would spare gene 
spare my father. And strangely, at this hospital in Lance, outside of Lansing or uh, Pittsburgh, I think of Lansing, Pennsylvania, there happened to be the world's foremost burn center at that time. And a visiting doctor who happened to be there was the world's foremost burn surgeon. And so somehow, a man with 0% chance of survival, because of God's kindness, landed in a place where it might have been the only place on the planet that he could have received help. And then he's got Groovy Gerwig, my grandmother, and her little cohort praying for him. So for eight or nine months, Gene was in and out of consciousness, having dreams about his watch blowing up and being in a house on fire and coming in and out, and his burns were so bad they began to just put skin grafts all over him um, because the, the skin was just no good. And so he ended up like a patchwork quilt. Literally every square inch of his body was just covered with little checkerboards of skin from other parts of his body. Uh, his eyes had been damaged so badly that they actually put skin grafts over his eyes to protect them from further damage. Uh, his arms were burned so badly that both of them were uh, amputated. And uh, so later in his life, they fitted him with uh, mechanical hooks so that he had a way to pick things up and move things around. So you can tell from the story that this man, this is a guy who believes in Jesus. He's a young man. He's expecting good things in his life, and yet what's happening in his life is, is not good. And so my grandmother's praying, and somehow this surgeon uh, manages to keep this guy alive. He was in that hospital, the VA hospital, for six years. Six years. Hundreds and hundreds of really painful surgeries. Over the course of his life, at one point, they think he had 1,500 surgeries. Uh, he'd gone through just tremendous pain, so much surgery that pain medication did very little for him. And so he would just have to kind of gut it out. He would say, just bring some Jack Daniels. And uh, I'm not encouraging you to, but it, it is a pain reliever. So this man who's in this terrible condition, he's completely, you know, reformed or deformed by his accident, uh, has his, can't see anymore. He's been in the hospital so long that his legs have atrophied and his back is frozen up, so he can't bend his back because normally they would turn you over to keep all these things moving, but they couldn't because of his burns. So he's got the trifecta of trouble going on. And yet, he becomes this magnetic person in the hospital because he keeps saying things like, man, God must have something for me to do. I shouldn't be alive. God kept me alive for a purpose. People would ask him uh, all through uh, my life, people would say, like, do you ever wonder why God did this to you? Do you ever ask why this happened or why you? And he said, no, man, I, never, I really never thought of that. Really never qu spent time thinking about that because there's really no answer to that. But he said, God must have a purpose for me because I should not be alive. So he made this choice. 
he made choices actually throughout his whole life to embrace joy, to live with undeniable hope, and in a very simple way to simply trust that God had something going on that he didn't understand, and he never would understand it. And he didn't even wonder about finding out when he got to heaven, like uh, Chris Stapleton says. Chris Stapleton says, don't go ask Jesus why about all this stuff. It's in the sweet by and by. My dad didn't even care whether he ever knew the answers. It ultimately didn't matter. Because what he did was he just went with what he knew. He trusted God. As a result, he experienced joy. But how do we deal with something so devastating? Remember, six years, hundreds of painful um, surgeries, and then another six or seven years outpatient where he's going in and out and in and out. How, did, how does this verse work? We know that God works all things for the good of those who love Jesus. For me, I, I think our life was really kind of a case study in where is God when your plan becomes different? Because my dad was kind of fireproof. You know, the fire burned up all of this, you know, the shell that, that we live in. But what was important in him, his soul, fire can't touch that unless you let it. Unless you let it. So my dad just became this example in the hospital. He became the most attractive, unattractive guy in the whole world. So as a result, he just started to have all these friends who had come and hang out with him. And he's he just this exuberant guy who was so thankful. What he always said was, even after the accident, he goes, I was just so thankful for everything God had done in my life. I'm like, wow, man. I used to tell my dad, Dad, you need to tell this story you need to write a book. You need to have somebody make a movie because this, I mean, I'm inspired. My life has been inspired by this. It's changed the way I see the world. And I'm not perfect with hope and not perfect in trust, but man, I believe that there's a good God in the midst of all of our fires. Here's my dad. And he, he used to say, no, I'm, that's not my job. That's your job. You know, God made you. He brought you to the earth. He made you to speak so you tell a story. That's, and that's why I'm telling you this familiar-to-me story this morning. Now, the deal is, is it sounds really kind of a downer sermon. You're probably going, man, I'm so glad that I need some Jack Daniels when I get out of this sermon. Look, I'm just telling you, he was the happiest, most well-adjusted guy in the world. And so much so that, like, my friends would come over and hang out with him. I'd come home from school, and I, my friends would be hanging out with my dad watching football and stuff. And I'd go, hey, what's going on, guys? Where are we going? they go, oh, we're just here hanging out with Gene. You know, because he was just this inspiring guy. Looked really intensely, you know, altered. And yet there was this beauty in him, this simple trust, this joyfulness that inspired people. So you think, well, how did Chuck Gerwig get here? Because remember, this man was a single man, 24, on leave, hurt. Now he's what? He's like 30. He's in the hospital. He can't walk. He can't see. Well, one day, he's laying in his hospital bed, and he's told them, hey, I need you to help me learn to walk again because I'm not going to live my life in this place. And so over a period of time, they started to get him more able to walk, and they told him, you're never going to see again. You're never going to walk again. And then they kept telling him, you have 10 years. You've got 10 more years. You've got internal burns. You've got 10 more years. And he said, well, we'll see, right? We'll see. We'll see when God wants me to die, but I don't think it's today. I don't think it's in 10 years. So as he is dealing with all of these issues, they've, you know, like I said, they had 
grafted over his eyes so that he wouldn't harm his eyes. He had no eyelids. I mean, he lost everything, all of his features, his ears, his nose, everything. He was just completely um, skeletal. And uh, so they rebuilt those things to one degree or another over his life. But uh, they had cut a little drain hole in the corner of his right eye. And one day he says, hey, I can see. And they, they said, there's no way you can see. That is impossible, right? Same people told him he wasn't going to be able to live in 10 years and you'll never walk again. Well, he said, no, I'm telling you what. I can look. I'm seeing the foot of my bed and I see a really pretty nurse at the foot of my bed. And sure enough, he could see. And they, they couldn't figure out how, but they opened his eyes up and gave him artificial eyelids, and uh, he was able to see, and uh, he had fancied himself a really handsome guy. Um, and I learned something from being around people who were burn cases. They always, before they were burned, they were so good looking, right? So my dad was like, oh, yeah, I had a girl in every town and, and all this. So somehow this man who was all burned up, laying in his hospital bed, finds he can see. And he begins to get to know this nurse who's in the hospital. She's taking care of him. She says, oh, he's got great legs. He's got beautiful legs. And, and what it was is she just loved his soul. And so this really pretty attractive 40-something-year-old, my mom was Puerto Rican. You don't ask Puerto Rican women how old they are. You won't get a true answer anyway. Um, but she was kind of older on the childbearing scale, but they fell in love. He said, get me walking because I got to get out of this hospital so I can date this woman. And they began to go to all the Copa and all the cool clubs. He was in New York at this time. They fell in love. They got married and they had a kid against all the odds. And I'm him. I'm him. And so you, can, you just clap for God because, you know, they, they probably wouldn't have been able to have kids. I'm not, we have no idea. Um, all I know is that God did something amazing through them. So I grew up with this, the most incredible dad in the world, you know? I mean, the only hands that ever held on to me were these, and these are the best hands when you're a little boy. These are the best hands. He can rescue uh, overcooked uh, corn on the cob out of the hot water. Uh, he was just the most amazing. He can't beat you or spank you because you can't hit a kid with it was amazing it was great but he was just so incredibly in tune with making my life good and making my mom's life good his focus was never inward i never caught him like staring in the mirror looking at himself his his focus was outward and because of this he inspired just countless countless people and he was just a wacky guy loved to tell stories he was a really um just a simple Christian. He didn't have a theological degree. You, if you come to this church regularly, you probably have a greater understanding of the Bible than my dad did. He just said, you know, God had a reason to keep me alive, and I'm just thankful. So they got married. They moved into a fifth-floor walk-up in the Bronx. Here's some family pictures that we collected of our family back in those days. There's my mom, my dad, uh, of course, like every New Yorker, uh, we had a pet monkey uh, named Dinky, and uh, my dad was friends with the guy who ran the monkey house at the zoo, so somehow we had a monkey, and my dad wanted his son to grow up having dogs, so he bought the most manly dog he could think of, uh, a giant white poodle named Fifi. And so my dad says, like, during their life, you know, when they would go out, they would walk down the fifth floor 
walk up, they would take the monkey out to, I don't know, I guess monkeys need fresh air, I don't know, uh, but they put the monkey on the bonnet of the baby carriage, put me in the baby carriage, my dad would be walking the giant French poodle, and my mom would be walking along, and my dad, so people would see us coming down the street, and they'd think, man, the circus has come to town. Yeah, it's just, he just had this happy, beautiful way of looking at life, you know, and yet, as you can see, I mean, his his whole body was a patchwork quilt, all the features that you see, nose and the one ear. Um, all these things were kind of recreated with, with great, great pain. Uh, but what you notice is he's smiling a lot. Uh, here he is with his great-grandchild, and uh, he had a beautiful life in the midst of so much difficulty, so much suffering. In fact, in the upper right-hand corner, about 15 years ago, I interviewed my dad uh, at the church that I was pastoring, and uh, we captured a recording of him talking about his life and the way he sees challenges and suffering. And um, if you want to, you can go to my website, chuck.org, with two Ks, and um, you can hear that, uh, as well as watch home movies of the monkey and what have you. So now I wanna, what I want to do is I took a lot of time to give you a backstory, because when you think about how the Bible talks about life and God and suffering and joy and money and relationships, it's really easy on a Sunday morning to, to divorce those things from the way that you really live, you know, to let them just kind of graze across your head and not think, well, is this really real, or how does this work, or, you know, what does this really mean in day-to-day life? So we're going to look at this one verse that I told you about in just a second. See, in life, things are really slippery. You know, you're, you're doing good, and it's really easy to trust God and to have hope and to have joy, but when something happens and a fire comes into your life, you have to ask the question, am I fireproof? What is it that about me can never be burned up? What cannot be taken away? And how do I recognize where God might be in this situation? Life is slippery, you know. And uh, I, I always tell the story that my dad had a few things he couldn't do, but he learned to do everything. Like he learned to drive a car again, and it was the scariest thing in the world, man, because he had one eye and a contact lens, and if the contact lens came out, he'd go, it's okay, you just drive over on the bumps, and if nobody beeps, then you go over. It's like Mr. Toad's wild ride every time. Uh, he, had, he had issues like he, couldn't put a, uh, he could not screw a light bulb in because he had no wrist. So he couldn't screw a light bulb in. It would take him hours to go like this, and one would break, and he'd get another one and go with his two hooks, and it would break. And uh, the worst thing for him was, he could, since you can't feel anything through metal hooks, if he had to go to the restroom, like if we went to a restaurant, and he had to go to the restroom... He would say, hey, son, can you come with me? And I hated this my entire life because what would happen is he loved to wear blue jeans. It had the little, you know, the little tiny zipper tab and he would get it down to the bottom. You know the little area, that, the point of no return with your zipper that you don't put the tab down there? Well, if you don't have hands, don't do that. But he never figured that out. So we would be in a public restroom. My dad would say, hey, son, can you give me a hand here? And I'm telling you, there is a universal law that if you touch another man's zipper in a public restroom, somebody will come in the door. <laughs> so he just had, he had all these challenges 
People stared at him every day, would come up and say, buddy, what happened to you? Children would scream and run away from him. And yet this man was saying things like, if I looked like me, or if someone else did and I saw them, man, I would look too. So you need to be at peace with these things. It's an incredible, incredible guy. So how does this passage in Romans 8, 28, it doesn't tell us why these things happen. Why do fires come into our life? Or, you know, why is it that earthquakes crumble homes and thousands die in trees? It doesn't tell us why. Um, I think what it does, it tells us something about who, who God is. So I want you to look at this passage. We're going to leave it up, and I just want to look at each word just a little bit. And Paul, this apostle who wrote most of your New Testament, he wrote this. He goes, I know something. And these things were originally written in the Greek language, which is really a great language because it's really specific. And so there's ways to look at it and study it to find out even deeper what these words meant. And this word, when it says we know, it means something that you've learned by experience and you are certain of. And this man, Paul, man, he had been beaten multiple times, shipwrecked multiple times, whipped multiple times. He had had sickness. They stoned him, threw rocks at him until he was almost dead. This man has had a challenging life. He's experienced pain. He had a chronic sickness. But here's what he knows, and here's what Gene knows. And Gene knows it by experience right now for real, first person, right? Like he doesn't need these anymore. Uh, when he was dead and gone, I remember picking up all the sets of hooks around the house and brought them home. They're precious to me. These are the hands that, that held me. But I realized, you know what? I didn't need those anymore. He did for a season. He doesn't need them anymore. This is what Paul says and what Gene would say right now. He goes, here's what I'm certain of. Here's what I know to be true. That in all things, in all things, he doesn't say everything's good. When I first read this as a brand new Christian, I had hopes that this was going to be like, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory golden ticket. This is going to be amazing, right? I'm never going to get sick. I'm never going to have hard times. I'll probably be wealthy because I'm going to follow God and I know that he's going to bless me with only good things. But that's not what this says. It doesn't say that all things are good. He says, in all things, in every type of occurrence, right? So in the birth of a beautiful, healthy baby, God is there. In a fire that destroys somebody's physical body, God is still there. He says, he knows for certain that God himself is involved. We know that in all things. For some people, they say, well, it's all good. That's not true. When people say that, they're lying to you. Or they're short-sighted because it won't be all good very long, right? Amen? If you have children, you like have a baby, you're like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's all good. Then they turn into 14, and you're like, this needs to go in the river. You know, I mean, <laughs> things aren't all good but it, that's not what this is saying it's saying something better saying something better what it's saying here is that in everything he knows something that in regardless of what happens that God works that God himself God knows all things 
He can do all things. And He is crazy about you and I. He loves us. He's aware of our fires and our victories and our rejoicing. And in all those things, this is the one who is at work, says he's at work, and that word in the Greek word uh, is one that means he's doing it right now and continues and will continue. He continues to be at work in your life. He's not distant. You know, we think, what? where did God go? I mean, this car's on fire and this man is screaming and now he's not screaming and they can't get him out and he wakes up to just a nightmare that we can't imagine and it says this God who knows all things and who loves this man and can do all things that he is constantly at work in our lives now some people want to tell you that every bad thing that happens to you is really because God wants to give you a lesson, right? And I think, oh man, I don't want any lessons. <laughs> right? If lessons mean pain and suffering. Now there are times that God will use a difficult situation in our life to help us and to grow us. But this does not mean that he causes every horrible thing that happens to give you a lesson. Did you have a parent like that? A parent who anytime they did anything with you, it was to teach you something? God's not like that. But we do live on an earth that's totally broken. In fact, if you look at the, the context or the surrounding verses of this passage, read chapter 8 tonight. Chapter 8 says that the world that we're in, the whole creation, critters and people, cultures and nations and the planet itself are broken and it's groaning, waiting for things to be changed, which are coming in Jesus. And he says, and we ourselves groan under the weight of a broken world because there are good things and there are bad things, but in it, regardless, God is at work. And it says, he's at work for the good. He's at work for the good. It's not just a lesson because he wants to punish you Maybe you have that kind of a view of God or a family life that everything was a punishment because you didn't measure up. Well, guess what? We don't measure up. Not even Pastor Jim, and he's an incredible guy, right? But we don't measure up. And it's never been about that. It's never been about that. There's a God who works even through the difficulties that come into our life. Maybe we did something to bring it. Maybe someone else did something to bring it. Maybe the broken planet we live on brought it. But in every way, there's a God who loves you and I, who is at work to bring flowers out of the dirt, to bring good out of what is not good. And finally, he says that this happens for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And these are words of relationship words of love, words of God has called people to himself into a relationship that he has a purpose. My dad said at the end of his life, it was four years ago, we were in a hospital up in Northern California, in a VA hospital, and uh, after all of my dad's suffering and difficulties, he ended up with three unrelated types of cancer. 
probably from all the medical treatments he's gotten. And he was laying dying, and it was an really difficult. It was hard. It was hard passing uh, at one point. And, um, and I'm going to be really honest with you. You know what I thought? I thought, God, hey, I've served you my whole life since I was 21. I've been a, I've been a faithful pastor. I've been a faithful husband. You know, I've done, I, I felt like I've you know, been a blessing to my dad. I felt like he's suffered enough. I'm not sure what you're doing here. It just doesn't feel fair. Hasn't he suffered enough? And yet, even in the moments that were difficult for him as he left, he was still a man who was filled with hope, as your church name says. He was still a man filled with joy. He still was trusting his Savior. He leaned over to me not long before he passed away, and he repeated something he'd said earlier and throughout my life. He said, um, I wouldn't change a thing. I've had the best life ever. I wouldn't change a thing. And he said, in a whisper, he said, it made me who I am. It made me who I am. Soon after, he closed his eyes for the last time and he let out his last breath. We never put on the hooks again. And we grieved his passing because he's just the best buddy. He's the most fun pal. But that same little understanding of God that gave him hope, that he could trust, and that gave him joy, even in the fire, it made him fireproof. And I used to think, well, my dad is an extraordinary person. Nobody else could do this. I'm really glad he was my dad. I learned so much from him. And I realized, no, but hang on. He passed it on to me. And he passed it on to my wife and to our two daughters and to people all over that met him was a sense of trusting God even in the fires of your life. I want to give you four really brief applications because I know I'm over time. One is it says that God brings out of the bad good for those who are in this loving relationship. He calls and invites us. And when we say, yes, Jesus, that opens the door to this idea of God redeeming or buying back our hurts and our future hurts. And it gives us hope and can even be joy. So if you came this morning and, and you say, well, I'm not really a follower of Jesus, maybe exploring that, whoever you came with, ask them, what does it mean to have a loving relationship with God? It's the most important thing I could say to you this morning. Second, if you've made that decision, choose joy. It is a choice. My dad could have chosen to be miserable, or he could have chosen joyful living that impacted thousands of people over the course of his life. He just chose joy, and he had too much fun. Sometimes we're like, whoa, settle down there, buddy. Whoa, whoa, don't tell that story. That's inappropriate. He's like, I don't care. He was having a good life. He chose joy every single day, and it became the pattern for his life, and it made it pretty hard to not choose joy because of that kind of living example. You can choose joy. If he can heal my dad, he can heal you. Next, serve others. I told you my dad said that his job was to bring me into the earth and to give me the best possible life. His best friend was one of my old best friends. My dad stole my buddy 
And uh, they're just great friends. And, and this guy, Donald, told me one night, he says, you know, Chuck, I don't know if your dad ever told you this. He goes, he told me one time, if my life and the fire were only to get me to Chuck's mother to give him birth, it was worth it. And I was like, man, the pollen here is so bad. Um, I've got allergies. It, is, it was so powerful because, see, his, he was not looking inward. And he's not looking in the mirror. His focus was outward. Find someone. They don't have to be worse off than you. Find someone who needs help. Serve them. Love them. Look outward. It will change their life, and it'll change your life, and what you become is a little Jesus in it. Lastly, I'd tell you, if you're in a place of struggling, if you feel a fire in your life, I would encourage you to reflect on God's past faithfulness to you. God's past faithfulness to you. If you have a diary, open your diary and look at it. Open your photo album and look back and think, when has God redeemed, when has God rescued me? When has he saved me? When has he brought joy into my life? Because we forget all that with the perspective of pain, which makes everything come right here and forget all the riches out here. So look through your photo albums. Look through a journal make a list that God Jesus you have done so much in my life I'm so thankful I have reason to trust you now because you are faithful to me before because he takes all things and turns them for the good of those in this loving relationship with him Paul says I know this to be true Gene says I know this to be true and I testify today I know this to be true. I pray that it'll become truer and truer for you. And the overspill will be hope for those who drive past the sign and don't come in and don't have that kind of hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm really thankful to be a uh, son of Gene. What a great privilege, Lord. Um, I thank you for everything that you taught uh, me and those around me through his life. I pray, Father, that somehow, in some way, through your spirit, that you would touch each of the people that you've, you know, you've brought in these people in this room for a reason this morning. I pray that you would help them develop a fireproof life based on trusting you, the one true lover of their soul. I pray for those around us, Lord, who, who suffer. I pray that you would help us to focus our time, our energy, our resources outward towards those who don't yet know you in a loving relationship and have to suffer alone. And they have all the ultimate questions and, and just no answer or no hope that it's going to be useful. God, you don't waste pain. So I pray that you would help us to be uh, the people who, who apply hope uh, and trust and live lives of joy regardless of the fires or the storms in our life. We thank you. God, that you love us enough to supersede our own stupidity and weakness and our broken world. And we're going to pray that, Father, um, in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.